If you're tired of these promos, supporters get the podcast early and ad-free. Just go to donate.bogosity.tv for the links to sign up. Welcome to the Bogosity Podcast for the week of August 21, 2022. The podcast that's neat, sweet, and petite. This is your host, Shane Killian. Let's conjugate the news of the bogus. In the fog of war, it's been difficult to get reliable information as to what's been going on in Ukraine. Actually, with the news media ignoring it to focus on the economy and Donald Trump, it's hard to find any information. I mean, other than utter propaganda like that fake parade of bombed-out Russian trucks in Kiev. But the few reports we're actually getting from Donbass are contradicting the story we're being told. At least when we're being told it. Maybe it would be different if more reporters would leave the propaganda offices in Kiev and actually go to the Donbass region like Sonia Vandenenda did. After all, it was the reporters in Iraq who started giving us the information that Americans weren't as well liked by Iraqis as the White House said, and they weren't exactly doing cartwheels that we were overthrowing Saddam Hussein. That's an effect that was echoed in Afghanistan and Libya. Reporters on the ground at the time were the ones who started giving us an inkling of what the truth was. It's a shame there aren't more of them in Donbass. Corroboration would be really nice. But what Vandenenda is reporting is that the claims of the Ukrainian government that the Russians caused destroyed buildings and civilian casualties is contradicted by the facts. She reports, The Ukrainian army and Azov, knowing that the Russians were coming, hid themselves in buildings where civilians lived, in schools and shopping centers. They took civilians hostage and used them as human shields, keeping the civilians captive in the basements. Note a recent report by Amnesty International has confirmed that Ukrainians have indeed been illegally operating out of civilian buildings. And she also contradicts reports that Ukrainians were just kicking the asses of that inept Russian army whose efforts to retreat were hampered only by their inability to find reverse. Quote, But in the end, the Ukrainians proved to be too weak against the supremacy of the Russian army. Apparently, the Ukrainian army did not have enough weapons, even though NATO and EU countries have provided billions of dollars in weaponry since the war began. Like a certain podcast reported not too long ago, the money wasn't really going to Ukraine, but to the military-industrial complex. This is just confirmation. She reports about visiting Melitopol, her third visit there. Quote, the former mayor, Ivan Fedorov, was a member of Pravdi Sektor, an ultra-right-wing political party with Nazi ideology, who was not elected, but installed by the regime in Kiev. This was in a city with a majority of Russian-speaking residents who were now being discriminated against. They were no longer allowed to speak Russian, and were no longer allowed to participate in their annual 9th of May celebration, the commemoration of the end of the Second World War and victory over the Nazis. She asked the deputy mayor, quote, How will the EU react if there is a referendum just like Crimea in 2014? The reply? We have nothing to do with that. Europe is finished, and when they will react badly, the same thing will happen as in the Patriotic War of 1941-45. to We will defeat fascism. We live here. They do not. Dang! Melitopol, the second largest city in Oblast, will apparently have a referendum in September to decide whether or not to become part of Russia. Already they're gearing up their arguments that this will be a fake election manipulated by Russia, just like they did with Crimea in 2014. 
But also like Crimea, when reporters talk to people in the region, they find overwhelming support for joining Russia. And why is that so hard to believe, given that these are overwhelmingly ethnic and cultural Russians? As Vondananda described their attitude, They in the West are at war with Russia, but the inhabitants of the Donbass are at war with the regime in Kiev and NATO, which fire missiles at them every day and kill their children. That's the way it is, and nothing else. She reports, As expected, and what I have heard several times in the cities, towns, and areas I have visited over the past five months, most people do not want to belong to Ukraine anymore. Too much has happened. Eight years of war. A war of attrition for the population that stayed. The West is deaf to the war. They only follow their own agenda and ignore the civilian casualties in eastern Ukraine. For the remaining residents, the pinnacle has been reached, as NATO, EU, and the West supplies weapons to the regime in Kiev, which is killing them and their children. So most likely, the majority will vote yes to become a part of Russia. And as she found out, this reporting comes with risks. She got threatening emails from the CIA accusing her of being an FSB agent and claiming that they've known about her for years. They told her that if she returns home to the Netherlands, she'll be declared an outlaw and brought to court. I'm sure that's the case, as for years she's been covering wars such as Syria and Afghanistan, and in particular the devastation caused by the U.S. military and its allies. She's also been put on a so-called peacekeeping list, which seems to be more like a kill list, given that several journalists in Ukraine who were put on the list have already been killed. Others on the list include Henry Kissinger, Nixon's Secretary of State, who has been extremely critical of U.S. foreign policy, and Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban, a vocal EU critic. And that's not even the worst of it. Quote, This shows the true face of the so-called Western democracies. As I said, kids' names even appear on this list. For instance, a 13-year-old girl from Luhansk, Faina Savinkova. Faina has been writing about her experiences in the Donbass. After her name appeared on the list, she started to receive online threats of physical violence. And those were serious. The website published her home address, social networks, and passport details of her and her relatives. Savinkova wrote an appeal to Amnesty International over her and 326 other children being placed on the list. Savinkova is a child prodigy in Lugansk, writing theatrical plays and science fiction novels who had addressed the UN back in 2021 in the hopes of raising awareness of what Ukrainians were doing in Donbass. When the Russo-Ukrainian War started, she started publishing her first-hand experience of what she saw going on in Donbass. In her letter, she wrote, It is very frightening and hard for me, like any Donbass resident, to watch the killing of children. We cannot defend ourselves, and at any moment we could be killed including by banned weapons used by Ukraine. And this is the situation that most Donbass children are in. She's also written to the UN, various presidents and prime ministers, and even filmmaker Oliver Stone. If anyone thinks they know better what's really going on, by all means bring it forward, but first, maybe you want to make sure the reporter has actually set foot outside Kiev. If you're looking for a way to support this channel, but you don't have any spare cash and you can't stand ads, you can do so by generating your own cryptocurrency. Use the links at the bottom of the description to follow the link to odyssey.com to listen to the podcast and see all of my YouTube videos as well. 
Just watching videos will produce cryptocurrency for the creator and yourself. And since Odyssey is always monetized and never censored, you'll have no problem seeing all the videos from your favorite creators. You can also use the library credits you create at Odyssey to tip creators and even purchase paid content. Earn library credits through various rewards, including daily view rewards and the number of shares and invites. And you can interact with creators in all sorts of ways, including like and dislike, comment, boost a post by supporting it, repost it, and share to other sites, all while earning crypto for the creator. Easily monetize yourself and your favorite creators using cryptocurrency without advertising. Use the link below to visit this channel on odyssey.com and see many of your other favorites there as well. Another uncomfortable truth we've been talking about the last couple of years, COVID lockdowns have apparently caused more harm to health and well-being than COVID itself. And take it from someone who had COVID twice, that's saying a lot. And as we covered, this was predicted, most notably by Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, professor of medicine at Stanford University and research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research. He was one of the authors of the Great Barrington Declaration, defending the scientific consensus of targeted protection and herd immunity over the authoritarianism masquerading as science we've all been subjected to. He recently co-authored an article with Miko Pakalan, Associate Professor of Economics at the University of Waterloo. They wrote, From the depths of our souls, economists believe that the law of unintended consequences applies to every social policy especially a social policy as all-encompassing and intrusive as lockdown. We economists believe that there are trade-offs in everything, and it is our particular job to point them out, even when the whole world is yelling at the top of its voice to be quiet about them. It may still be a good idea to adopt some policy, because the benefits are worth the cost, but we should go in with our eyes open about both. That statement echoes Henry Hazlitt's Economics in One Lesson, where he said, quote, the art of economics consists in looking not merely at the immediate, but at the longer effects of any act or policy. It consists in tracing the consequences of that policy, not merely for one group, but for all groups. And the costs of lockdowns, both economically and in health, were not only predictable, but predicted. But as they wrote, Economists who study and write about these phenomena for a living had a special responsibility to raise the alarm. And though some did speak, most either stayed silent or actively promoted lockdown. Economists had one job, notice costs. On COVID, the profession failed. Part of it was the hostility received by anyone who dared speak out, something Bhattacharya knows only too well. Anyone questioning the zeitgeist was portrayed as a heartless monster, and COVID is the worst disease ever that would absolutely devastate mankind if it weren't fought at all costs. It's the precautionary principle, something we've attacked in the past, but that's always the favorite of authoritarians. We know that X will cause harm, therefore, we either shouldn't do X at all, or should do everything we can to actively oppose it. But we know that's the case with the precautionary principle itself. Therefore, according to the precautionary principle, we shouldn't follow the precautionary principle. It's self-contradictory. The second reason, well, it's something we've noticed with a lot of economists, too. Quote, Economists belong to the laptop class. We work for universities, banks, governments, consulting agencies, corporations, think tanks, and other elite institutions. Relative to much of the rest of society, 
The lockdowns posed much less harm on us and maybe even kept some of us safe from COVID. Narrowly speaking, lockdowns personally benefited many economists, which may have colored our views about them. But as they wrote, There are harms from the lockdown policies that any responsible economist should have considered before deciding that lockdowns were a good idea even then. A consistent application of the precautionary principle would have considered the possibility of such collateral lockdown harms, assuming the worst as the principle dictates. That's another contradiction. The things you would do to oppose it have costs, too. So under the terms of the precautionary principle, what do you do? The authors are considering a softer form of the precautionary principle than what authoritarians revel in. Maybe it does make sense to err on the side of caution when the effects are unknown. Assume things are a little more towards the worse than the better. But by the same token, we should do the same thing with the policies put in place to combat it, such as lockdowns. Basically, realize reality is a trade-off. Of course, the history of lockdowns during epidemics shows that they don't really work much at all, so even that is giving them way too much credit. But even when evidence surfaced that the effects of COVID weren't as bad as originally assumed, economists and policymakers refused to revise their findings, insisting on a worst-case scenario that was no longer valid. But the costs of lockdowns were known from the start. Quote, Recall the early UN estimates that forecasted the starvation of 130 million people in poor countries due to the global economic decline. Suppose that only 15% of that figure is attributable to lockdowns. Taking 15% of 130 million yields a number that represents immense human suffering attributable to lockdowns, even by this overly conservative reckoning. And we have not begun to count the other harms of lockdown, which include hundreds of thousands of additional children in South Asia dead from starvation or inadequate medical care, the collapse of treatment networks for tuberculosis and HIV patients, delayed cancer treatment and screening, and much else. In other words, if lockdowns are indeed responsible for only a tiny share of the decline in economic activity, as many economists have claimed, the total size of the local and global collateral costs from lockdowns is still enormous. The collateral harms to human health and life caused by lockdown are far too large to be dismissed, even under the rosy assumption that panic would have happened in the absence of lockdown. The lessons from this are as fundamental as they are profound. Quote, as empirical techniques and applications have taken over the profession, economics has become a stagnant or perhaps even a receding discipline in its understanding of basic economic trade-offs that once comprised the core of economic training. How many professional economists still agree with Lionel Robbins' famous definition, economics is the science that studies human behavior as a relationship between ends and scarce resources which have alternative uses? How much of the work of today's economists serves this goal well? Overt emphasis on quantitative methods and imperial work has made economists less familiar with the economy itself, a trend that the increasing disconnect between the perceived and actual precision of economists' theoretical modeling has amplified. Of course, they wouldn't have to learn this lesson now if they'd listened to F.A. Hayek back when he'd warned of the same exact thing. There needs to be serious reflection about the costs of lockdowns, school closures, mask mandates, and other authoritarian policies proper to fight COVID. Unfortunately, that just isn't something that politicians, policymakers, and the news media often do.
If you're on the Wi-Fi in a coffee shop or hotel, anyone on that network can get your traffic. Do you really trust all of those strangers? For that matter, do you really trust your ISP? A VPN can protect you from prying eyes, disguise your location, and even foil government censors. It's essential in this day and age. So go to vpn.pagosity.tv and you'll be taken to BoxPN. Starting at just $2.99 a month, you can get unlimited high-speed connections to VPN servers all over the world. And they don't log connections, so your privacy is assured. Traveling abroad, just VPN home, and don't worry about what those other governments are doing. Back at home, stop your ISP from traffic shaping and messing with the quality internet access you're paying good money for. You can connect from multiple machines at once, including your smartphone or tablet, and it supports all the secure standards, including OpenVPN and SSTP. Bypass sensors and surveillance with your own secure VPN connection. Go to vpn.pagosity.tv. For over 10 years, we've been following the saga of Julian Assange and his persecution from the U.S. and Europe because of his revelations about U.S. war crimes in Iraq. The latest development is about a group of journalists and lawyers who were suing the CIA, as well as Mike Pompeo, who was the CIA director and later Secretary of State under Donald Trump, for illegally spying on them when they visited Assange in the Ecuadorian embassy in London. Lead attorney Richard Roth said, quote, the United States Constitution shields American citizens from U.S. government overreach even when the activities take place in a foreign embassy in a foreign country. If you ask me, it doesn't just protect citizens. Government can't do it to anyone. The Bill of Rights says people, not citizens. The Constitution is very particular about when it means citizens, such as the right to vote, as mentioned in the 15th, 19th, 24th, and 26th Amendments, where it specifically says the right of citizens. The Bill of Rights doesn't say that. In fact, the word citizen appears nowhere in the first ten amendments. The Bill of Rights stops the government from doing those things to anyone. But anyway, the CIA is specifically prohibited from collecting intelligence on U.S. citizens. But there have been allegations for decades that it was doing so anyway. But the Vault 7 leaks published by WikiLeaks in 2017 confirmed that they specifically possessed the capability of engaging in surveillance and cyber warfare against U.S. citizens. This includes tools to compromise Apple products, including hacking the firmware of iPhones, exploiting flaws in Cisco routers, Android malware, spying on messaging services, and many others. At the time, Edward Snowden tweeted, the CIA reports show the USG developing vulnerabilities in U.S. products, then intentionally keeping the holes open. Reckless beyond words. According to the lawsuit, the journalists and lawyers were required to surrender their electronic devices to a private security company, which then, without the knowledge or permission of the Ecuadorian government, copied the data from the devices and forwarded it to the CIA. The lawsuit also alleges that this was authorized and approved by Pompeo himself. Quote, Defendant Pompeo was aware of and approved the copying of information contained on plaintiffs' mobile electronic devices and the surreptitious audio monitoring of their meetings with Assange, that the surveillance of Assange and his visitors was orchestrated by Defendant Pompeo without the permission or knowledge of the Ecuadorian government, which has confirmed it did not order or authorize UC Global to institute enhanced surveillance of Assange. Quote, While the named plaintiffs initiate this action, 
The practices complained of violate the rights of well over a hundred American citizens who visited Assange at the Ecuadorian embassy in London, England, including attorneys who were then representing him, journalists there to interview him, and even doctors who were then treating him. Roth said, quote, The conduct by the government was outrageous and inappropriate, which violated the most profound privacy rights of the plaintiffs and others who visited Assange in the embassy. To make matters worse, Many of the conversations were absolutely privileged and confidential in nature, in that the plaintiffs are journalists and attorneys who went there to visit their clients. The lawsuit also names the security firm UC Global and its founder, David Morales, as defendants. They allege that, under orders from the CIA, the company installed, quote, systems which would significantly improve the quality of surveillance of Assange's daily activities, better record all conversations, and precisely copy and steal the content of electronic devices that third-party visitors brought into the embassy. The lawsuit quotes Pompeo saying in 2017, quote, It is time to call out WikiLeaks for what it really is, a non-state hostile intelligence service. He went on to call Assange a narcissist, a fraud, and a coward. Quote, At the conclusion of his remarks, Pompeo pledged that his office would embark upon a long-term campaign against WikiLeaks. His reference included placing that campaign under the jurisdiction of counterintelligence agencies in order to avoid scrutiny by Congress, congressional oversight having been skirted as a result of the non-state hostile intelligence service designation conferred upon WikiLeaks in Pompeo's speech. They're asking the court not only for a jury trial for damages, but to enjoin the CIA from utilizing this unlawfully seized information, as well as to purge it all from its files. Best of luck to them. Do you have children, or nieces or nephews? Are you homeschooling, or just want to counter some of the socialist indoctrination most children get in school? If so, go to bogosity.tv slash Tuttletwins, and you'll be taken to a website where you can get some great books for elementary-aged children. The Tuttle Twins books are books about liberty and free market economics that include children's versions of Bastiat's The Law, Leonard Reed's I Pencil, and Hayek's The Road to Serfdom, as well as books about the Federal Reserve and how regulations protect business cronies. They'll learn about the harm caused by eminent domain, or regulations passed in the name of safety, and fundamental concepts of liberty. And as you can see from the sample pages on the website, they're all easy to read and nicely illustrated. They're just $9.99 a piece, or get a special discount as well as free bonuses when you purchase all five. You can even buy in bulk to donate to schools and local libraries. So get the Tuttle Twins books at bogosity.tv slash Tuttle Twins. And now it's time to de-sanctify this week's Biggest Bogun Emitter. Just as the Clean Air Act didn't make air cleaner, the No Child Left Behind Act left millions of children behind, and the Affordable Care Act made health care significantly more expensive, now the Inflation Reduction Act has been passed and, if anything, it'll just make inflation worse. By the way, if you're wondering what the act actually is, it's just the Build Back Better Act renamed. I don't think I need to go over again how massive government spending results in inflation, but it is a lot worse when government, in the name of stimulus, creates it specifically for goods to be bought in the economy. The faster it gets into circulation, the bigger inflationary effect it has. Which is what got us into this mess. It's largely due to COVID stimulus spending to the tune of $1.9 trillion in 2021's American Rescue Plan Act. 
I swear, if Congress ever passes the Cute Puppies and Rainbows Act, you'd better stock up on non-perishables and build a bomb shelter. It ended up being harmful because it was passed just as the economy was reopening on its own, inhibiting the recovery. It also didn't help that the Fed kept interest rates at 0% until March of this year, making for two years of zero interest. For the banks, that is, not you and me. So as we covered, that drove inflation to a 40-year high, outpacing wage growth. Real wages have fallen 5.6% since the end of 2020. But don't worry, they're going to reduce the deficit by a grand total of 1%. billion over 10 years. They started a fire with a flamethrower and now want to put it out with a squirt gun. Even more stupidly, the deficit reduction doesn't come from spending cuts, but tax hikes, which, as anyone who knows the name Art Laffer can tell you, doesn't work. Half of these new taxes will be shouldered by the beleaguered manufacturing industry, slowing production even further. And as we covered last week, any new taxes are going to hit small businesses hardest, despite the lies told by Biden, the Democrats, and their corporate and media cronies. By the way, unlike the 10-year trickle of deficit reduction, all these taxes are going to hit us up front. Unless, of course, you're one of Biden's cronies like the so-called clean energy industry, then you get subsidies! The only way to properly deal with inflation is to stop all deficit spending and have the Fed stop monkeying around with interest rates. Even with COVID, things were getting better before Biden took office. Now, they're insanely worse. Really, the best thing the Biden administration could do for the economy and to stop inflation is to vacate the White House. So all of that makes the Democrats this week's biggest bogey emitter. I want to tell you about the eyeglasses I've been wearing for years. As people can see on my videos, I have a very strong prescription, which makes glasses more expensive, especially when I need computer glasses, reading glasses, prescription sunglasses, and most expensively, progressive lenses for general everyday wear. To save money while still getting quality glasses, I get them from Fermu. In fact, I just got a pair of progressives with high-index aspherical lenses and a nice pair of frames my wife loves for just over $100. It would have been $500 to get them through my eye doctor. Not only do they look good, the glasses are durable. I've worn many pairs for several years without problems. All orders come with a 30-day return policy, a 3-month warranty, and one-on-one -on -one customer service. Go to Firmu, that's F-I-R-M-O-O dot Bogosity dot TV, anytime you need quality glasses at a low price. Once again, that's Firmu dot Bogosity dot TV. And now let's fumigate this week's... Idiot And this week, it goes to San Francisco. Hey, remember those scandals about the Pentagon paying $400 for a hammer, $600 for a toilet seat? San Fran just blew right past them with, get this, $20,000 trash cans. So the city needs to replace its stock of over 3,000 public trash bins. That stands to reason they don't last forever, and maybe there is something to be said for shopping around for bins that look nice and are easy to use or whatever. 
That would encourage people to actually use them and make for a nicer, cleaner city. Except, what they actually did was commission custom-made trash cans costing tens of thousands of dollars each. The San Francisco Department of Public Works commissioned the cans after the existing bins were, quote, easy targets for scavengers. Let's make it clear, that means trash diggers. Basically, homeless people looking for food. I think the main problem there is something new bins won't fix. Over the last four years, they commissioned three custom-made trash cans, one costing $11,000, another $18,000, and the third coming in at $20,900. And they look like they were designed for Doctor Who back in the 60s. They did examine some off-the-shelf models as well, but they cost up to $2,800 apiece. Supervisor Matt Haney said in a meeting, quote, Why are we still doing this rather than putting out a bunch of different types of cans that are already produced, that are much cheaper, that are already performing well, and then making a decision based on this? This is a very expensive, much longer, uncertain process. Public Works Director Alaric Degerfrenried said it was unique because SF is, quote, obviously very unique, and they, quote, weren't happy with the look of existing cans. So they spent upwards of half a million dollars for the custom bins. Officials waved away the cost, saying that it'll end up being as cheap as $2,000 per can. And just like with everything else government does, it won't achieve its purpose. Several of the cans put out for testing have already been tagged with graffiti and are surrounded by trash, meaning people are still unwilling to use them even when they're right there. The problem has existed in San Fran for decades, but it got worse in 2007 when Gavin Newsom, then mayor, got rid of 1,500 cans, a full third of them, because he thought that would somehow make the city cleaner. That's a perfect example of why California is in such a mess today. The new bins aren't even scheduled to replace the old until 2023. And who wants to bet that, at the end of it all, they'll be a lot more expensive. So all of that makes San Francisco this week's... Idiot Well, that wraps up this... I've been at Autopsies with more Party Atmosphere, edition of the Bogosity Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please go to donate.bogosity.tv for several ways to support and discord.bogosity.tv to join the discussion. Subscribe at Patreon or Subscribestar, and you can listen early and ad-free. Thank you for listening. Until next time, here's a quote from John F. Kennedy. An economy hampered by restrictive tax rates will never produce enough revenue to balance the budget just as it will never produce enough jobs or enough profits. The Bogosity Podcast is licensed under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License. Bogosity. We live in a world where light bulbs connect to the internet, and recent attacks on them prove that your online security is under threat like never before. Not only your websites, but the internet-enabled devices you buy. 
and the biggest problem is weak passwords. That's why you need LastPass. LastPass allows you to randomly generate strong, unique passwords on the web and on your internet-enabled devices, all protected by one master password. LastPass sets up in minutes and gives you secure automatic logins throughout the web, synchronizing across all your browsers, all your computers, and even your mobile devices, at home, at work, or on the road. It even securely stores sensitive form data, including credit card numbers, backup sensitive documents, software licenses, Wi-Fi logins, and more. And with LastPass Premium, you can get these benefits on other applications, manage passwords for your entire family, and also get priority customer support. Sign up at password.bogosity.tv for a free month of LastPass Premium. Log in securely everywhere using the last password you'll ever have to remember. Go to password.bogosity.tv and get LastPass now.